Recording a band onto an album is an art form of its own, and producer Scott Burns has definitely struck that uh, uh, brush numerous times with Florida death metal, thrash metal. So if you don't know Scott Burns, then you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast, because this is the Into the Darkness interview series, where we go deep into conversation. So hey, if this video is too much for you, then I want to remind you that you can go to ReaperMetalProductions.com, and you can get the audio version, as well as all the music that's there, and then head over to Redefining Dark records.com where my host thomas here has plenty of music for you to check out as well so reapermetalproductions.com and redefiningdarknessrecords.com links are in the description and scott burns very happy to welcome you to the show i imagine that you're might be calling from florida or maybe those days are over where are you calling from scott still in florida <laughs> i've never left i've always been here I'm still here thank you for having me amid all the the madness i and we kind of mentioned off air that you're working from home. Has it always been the case, or uh, are you typically going into the office when you're not dealing with a pandemic? No, I used to travel a lot for work. So, uh, but the account I'm on right now, I work from home, so I don't have to travel. But like I said, I spent time up your way in Ohio right. and other states and stuff like that. Usually, I had to travel, be on site with the client. But um, now I don't, and it's been. I guess actually it's easy to remember since Hurricane Irma. So that was about two and a half years ago. So right. first off, how many years has it been since you've been behind a board? I would suppose like 2000 or something. I think the Sadist record was probably the last thing I did. I mean, I did a little thing with obituary, but probably the last full record I did was the Sadist record. And that was probably, I don't know, was that even around 2000 or maybe a little earlier than that. Made a post on Instagram, made a post on Facebook, just to kind of let people know, hey, we're going to be interviewing Scott Burns. What questions would you guys have for him? And the response back was insane, like immense. And everyone was saying, I just used to look for records that said produced or engineered by Scott Burns. It was a seal of quality and like all these things. So your name has obviously become synonymous with death metal and uh, has become you know legendary in a, in a positive way. And I'm just curious as to how you feel about that, how you feel about being ingrained in such a in, in death metal history, I guess. Well, I love those guys. You know, I mean... I, I mean, if you don't know, is I mean, I listened to metal and rock when I was a lot younger at the time, and I got really attracted to, and I liked a lot of punk rock and stuff like that, and even the new wave, you know, Subhumans, Crass, Bauhaus, Susie and the Banshees, anything back, Sex Pistols. So when, you know, and just, I mean, Anyway, so that's how I started was just friends of mine had a band and I did live sound for them. And then we won, they won some little battle of the bands. We went to some junkie studio and I was hooked on it because, you know, live sound was fun, but, you know, you always had a hard time, you know, where the venue was and right. your PA. You never could make things sound good and the studio was a little more refined and, so I used to just start off just recording. I'd pay bands to let me pay half their studio time to record. And that's how I found more sound because wow. it was the only real good studio in there. And so Jim and Rick and Tom, Tom and Jim Morris and Rick Miller, they're the owners. And, and then, you know, so I would pay so I couldn't fuck things up too bad. You know, they'd make sure I didn't fuck things up and the band would get something decent and I'd learn and 
have fun. And so eventually I just got a job as an assistant. And, you know, like I said, with I just liked, and then, you know, I guess Dan Johnson, he had par records. And at the time he had a band called Avatar, which probably all know became Sabotage. Right. He was doing other bands. He had a Canadian band called Damage, just like an Iron Maiden band. And um, they were good. And, you know, and then um, Crimson Glory from Sarasota down our way, which is like, you know, Queensryche type band. And, but anyway, he was bringing in a lot of bands. And then, you know, back, I mean, I can remember, you know, John Tardy and those guys, <laughs> the obituary guys, when they were executioner. They were coming in when they were 13, 14, 15 years old. Wow. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, I don't even know if their parents were bringing them or they were, one <laughs> of them was old enough to drive. But, but anyway, to make a long story short, and the Savage guys were in there is, you know, I was just the assistant engineer and worked with them. And even though I didn't know a lot about death metal, I mean, it was cool and it was over the top. So to me, it was like punk rock. I mean, it was real extreme. I remember, you know, I always say this one. First time I heard John Tardy sing, I was like, wow, this guy's the craziest guy I've ever heard. I mean, he makes the punk guys, you know, and, and I would do sound for Savage and those guys and executioner. And, you know, Chuck came in, he did leprosy with Dan and, the whiplash guys came down. There was just, you know, obviously, you know, it's a well-known, it was all, a lot of it was tied to Roadrunner right. and to Metal Blade and some earache. But I just, to me is, I just like the extremeness of it. Right. And on, from a technical standpoint is, you know, when I listened to a lot of the records with the guys is, I thought a lot of them sounded really bad, man. And yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you go back in it, and I think a lot of it came from the attitude that, you know, most, it's hard to, you know, like I said, it's like recording in a blender, right? Everything's super fast. <laughs> yeah. And, and most, a lot of engineers just, if you're not into it, they just say, oh, fuck it, it's shit, and who cares? Right. Right? In my opinion. I mean, I'm not trying to paint with broad brush, but I just met a lot of guys. And so anyway, I mean, back to the thing is, I'm real proud, because listen, you know, it's nice to think that people think I did a great job. I'm just lucky I work with great bands, right? right. I mean, those bands, listen, <laughs> I haven't done you, the first question you asked me, Thomas, you know, I haven't done anything in a long time. Those guys are still kicking. Look right. at Cannibal Corpse. Look at Obituary. They got death reunions with all the guys playing. I mean, the Cynic guys are back. I mean, Atheist plays around. And I mean, they're, you know, they're good bands because they were good bands. And I was lucky to be very lucky to be a part of it. And I'd like to think, yeah, I helped it. But, but at the same time, is it was a lot of good bands, and it was great to be a part of that scene because it was a lot of fun, and it was you know it was crazy. I mean, the Deicide guys, I mean Glenn and stuff. I mean, all, yeah. you know, they were all at the. But it was a great time, you know. I mean, and I remember, you know, Deicide, they were Amon, you know, before right. and stuff, and I mean, you know, Nocturnus. I mean, they were all. You know, I never worked with them, but the Morbid Angel guys, I mean, they made great music and all the band. Anyway, but it was, it was just a nice, it was a lot of fun. And especially if you liked extreme stuff, I mean, it, it definitely was, you know? Right. 
you know, it, you, you bring up Deicide, though, then, because that would have been like the heyday of when Glenn was uh, kind of, I guess, notorious for what people, they, you know, have kind of known him to be and maybe shocked even because we even did an interview with him here on the channel. And a lot of people are like, wow, Glenn's actually nicer than I thought he was. And so maybe back in those days when it's the early, you know, the stuff that brought him to maybe be the not so nice that people maybe thought he was. Was there any of that going on in the studio? Like, was he harder to work with or? Was he, or was he the fun-loving guy that we, we uh, yeah, know yeah. now? <laughs> <laughs> no, Glenn's all right. But I'll tell you here. I'll tell you a funny story. And this is not in the studio, but uh, Mike Browning, I believe, he did a concert. He set up a, a show somewhere, and it was Nocturnus. I think Morbid and opening was Amon. And I, I say this kind of funny because, you know, you guys say, oh, people like your stuff. Well, at the time, so Deicide probably was, I mean, the Haymon, the Deicide came a little later than like the Atheist Obituary and stuff like, you know, not a whole lot later, but maybe they start, you know, but their record deals maybe a year or two later. So anyway, uh, Browning had set up this show, I believe, and it was in some guy's uh, warehouse barn or whatever and it was strange because it was elevated about six eight feet off the ground the stage and it wasn't really a stage but it was just how it was set up but the bands okay. were playing so they were pretty high about eye level so here comes you know hadn't really heard much of deicide but here come the amon guys and you know they got all their cross gear with with spikes, uh, studs yeah. spikes through, through you know <laughs> glued into them and he's got statues of the virgin mary and all these artifacts and so they start off playing and i was doing sound uh for the guys everybody that night and <laughs> here comes glenn and he says hey it sounds like shit, asshole, and he's yelling at me over the PA, you know? And I was just, I was like, wow, who's this guy, right? I mean, he's just he's busting my balls in front of everybody, but it was awesome. And then to make it, to go on, and what a great night it was, is he started smashing, Glenn started smashing these, uh, uh, and you couldn't make this up, this is like a Quentin Tarantino movie. He started smashing these, uh, statues and they were full of like pig's blood and stuff so oh, all the blood and all was dripping and then the guy that owned the place he had some like pit bulls or some dogs and they were lapping this stuff up <laughs> but but anyway glenn has always been a character and he's a really good guy and maybe a couple times he had a hot temper right. but i mean you know i can remember them wearing armor uh on the plane to play the uh, milwaukee metal fest <laughs> right, you know, right. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you awesome. know, and old ladies at the airport laughing, you know. But anyway, looking at him, scared. But, but no, nah, I mean, he's all right. He's he's a good guy. So yeah, we had a good time with him. You yeah, know, oh, he's, yeah. Uh, he's obviously in a very different place now. But uh, you know, he, he always had that bad reputation of kind of being a dick to to people or fans and this and that. But uh, he was he was really fantastic. So uh, some of it might be also mistaken of character too. You know, you don't you don't get to be with them for hours of a day to know maybe something that might be. Yeah, it feels like shit in a van and yeah, yeah, yeah asking yes. him all these questions. Totally. Right? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> but you, you know, you can't name yourself Deicide and be too nice all the time. Right. <laughs> right. That's kind of what I thought too. Yeah. You want. What would you want from a band called DSI? Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So. so, Scott, I had a, I had a question for you. Um, you know, after, through watching countless videos and, and reading through some uh, some books that had been written kind of about death metal in that time and 
um, interviews with Jim and yourself and whatnot, it come to note that you were obviously doing a lot of this work for, for small budgets, um, and some of that was just due to uh, maybe the labels were smaller at the time. Obviously, the, the bands were new. Um, the style was new, so there wasn't a lot of money being thrown around. But over time, as you had even mentioned uh, on some interviews, a lot of this started making money, and these bands started selling 40-plus and 100-plus thousand records. Um, so was there ever a time that those $5,000, $10,000 budgets, you, set, you, you started opting for producer or engineer credits? Did that ever become a thing for you or an option for you? I don't think I ever asked for anything. I mean, you know, they just ended up always... You know, out of niceness in the beginning, put it in as produced and engineered, and then it kind of stuck. But I mean, as far as I mean, you know, the probably the typical album back in the day was like take corpses eating back the life or something, or right. you know, any of the first malevolent or anything it was probably about five thousand bucks right. you probably got about one week in the studio at the most and um you know as far as if you're asking what i took i mean you know i didn't well you I were like an hourly employee at the time right or were you getting a percentage uh, no, they would pay me. I was, but I mean, I eventually, I mean, I was getting some money, you know, like I think like 800 bucks pop or something yeah. like that out of it. But, you know, the thing was, guys, I mean, <laughs> you can't take a whole lot of money. I remember there's only two records I ever took points on, and that's when they all said, oh, you should take points. Right. And I, I ended up giving them back. It was the first DSI and the first corpse. Oh, wow. And, you know, I mean, it was like, I remember with the corpse guys sitting there after, you know, and if Brian Slagle hears this, this isn't any or failing. Those guys are great. And this isn't, this is just how the record business works. But sure. I mean, I remember them telling me that because they're great guys that, you know, they were what cross collateralized or they were still in debt, you know, well after butchered at birth and yeah. they and, and the whole album only cost five grand. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think I got a check once for like 120 bucks or something. Yeah. So I just, so, I mean, I talked to Barnes and those, and I just, and Glenn and just and Monty, you know, from Roadrunner sure. and just said, look, I'm not trying to sound heroic or anything, but I was just like, look, these guys, it's their record. They need the money more than me. You know what I mean? And what am I doing? You know what I mean? I mean, right. I just never was comfortable with that. But at the end there, I mean, the bands obviously got bigger, bigger budgets. They got up to forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, yeah. you know, and I, I mean, I guess to me, though, it, the thing is, I guess, you know, when you're a new band, you probably wrote everything sitting in your garage or your rehearsal hall, and you've just been sitting there playing. But then when you start touring constantly and stuff like that, it takes more money to keep everybody fed and to write and to get together. And so, I mean, it's, a, you know, I, you know, like I said, is does a $60,000 album sound... 10 times better i don't know but <laughs> but anyway i mean that's how it is but as far as it that's basically just how it worked was is that you know they would usually just be nice and give me that credit and it was never you know 
just the way it was. I would have been happy, you know, just engineered or anything. But, you know, because to be honest, it, it, I mean, you guys know you're in the metal and you have the label. I mean, it's not like I rewrote any songs, right? right. I mean, it's not like a pop artist where you come in and you try and make a hit or anything like that. I mean, I think the most important thing is trying to get it to sound good and, you know, be in tune and right. get it on the tape. Or, <laughs> right? yep. Well, what were some of the problems that you were having then is getting bands in tune and stuff? Like, because I know there was definitely things described as far as like, you know, bands being uh, not so prepared. So like, what were some of the highlights, though, of like making it a little bit of a hardship other than just press and record? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I would just say this, that when you're younger and the first couple of times is things you don't notice as much, like when you're in a rehearsal hall, right? I mean, everything just sounds yeah. loud, heavy, and like you think your guitar sounds the greatest thing in the world when your bass player is telling you, well, I think his guitar sounds shit <laughs> or something. I mean, making a joke. and But I'm saying yeah. it so when you really start to mic things up, then maybe you hear stuff and and... And, um, you know, just staying in tune, especially when you start double tracking guitars or things like that, you know, you can get a lot of it. You know, I, I wouldn't say any bands are bad at all, but I mean, sometimes it's just the first go around that, you know what I mean? You, you don't, yeah. you, things that you just don't practice, you know, I mean, are done at times. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's just a little difficult when you're on a short budget because, you know, the thing we tried to do the most is, I mean, Dom and Jim were always cool, is, you know, a lockout would be 12 hours a day, but we try and work 14, 15, 16, as long as we could stay awake. Right. Because that was the only way we could make up the time difference, right? Sure. I mean, we couldn't really get a lot of money extra. Sometimes we could if the label liked you a lot, or if it was your second record, maybe they'd give you a little forgiveness. But, but, um, but you know, and like I said, is. I mean, difficulty sometimes guitar sounds or drum sounds. I mean, you know, you just don't realize, like, sometimes drummers, like, you know, you need to change heads if the heads go dead really fast, yeah. right? I mean, or strings on guitars, right? I mean, they go dead or you need to tune in between takes and things. And I, I mean, <laughs> if you talk to any of these bands now, this is stuff that they just are rudimentary that they do in their sleeve, right? But, yeah, exactly. You know, when you're... 18 or 20 and it's the first time in a studio you just need somebody to give you a little nudge and say hey you know that's it i mean been there done that totally yeah well that it makes you feel better too that sometimes like these are the things that you don't always hear especially like as a musician that goes through it that like oh other bands that i've looked up to or you know that, that you would think that just couldn't do any harm like no they have the same kind of things that go into it because yeah it is like you said like you're pla practicing in a rehearsal space there's a lot to be said about you're a band that wrote some songs, but then when you walk into a studio, it isn't like you could just amp your, uh, you know, mic your amp, and then it's going to sound as great as it did in the rehearsal space. You know, microphone's going to hear it way differently, and the set, the setting, all that great stuff. So, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir on that one, but it is just always something of curiosity's sake that it's like, you know, what what are some of the things that you can or cannot grasp that might be like I'm normal too, like you know, yeah. somebody I look up to that care, you know, went through the same thing as me struggling or whatever yeah well, i wanted to get into some uh, audio nerdery if we can scott i'm gonna 
I'd like to read an excerpt, actually, from um, Extremely Restrained. It was a, a book that uh, Jason Netherton of uh, Misery Index, who used to be in Dying Fetus, uh, kind of compiled from multiple interviews, and he'd interviewed uh, Jim Morris. And he had kind of started talking about um, kind of the triggered samples and how you guys were doing that. So I kind of want to read like a, a paragraph and just have you kind of respond to it and maybe elaborate on some of it. Because this is something, you know, uh, me and Reaper actually being, I wouldn't say professional engineers, but uh, we've done some engineering in our day and have been doing it, you know, paid. Right. Um, but maybe not any like super formal training. And that's obviously a lot different than it used to be. But even when I was in high school, I had uh, that it was my dream was uh, I was interning at a, a recording studio in the area and, you know, kind of learning to patch all the all the old school ways and, and that kind of stuff. And then everything was changing rapidly as I was uh, getting into my 20s. So it was just kind of keeping up with the technology at that point. But uh, this is a, of deep interest to me personally, and I know Reaper as well, and I'm sure, yeah, a, lot, sure. a lot of people uh, listening. So let me read this through and then uh, you know, kind of get your take on it. But I can't even imagine... Uh, triggering samples um, oh, when you're on tape. I mean, it's, it's a pain in the ass uh, in, in Pro Tools and, yeah, and editing yeah. and sound replacing that way. So I'd love to get your take. But let me let me read through some of this, and uh, it's only about two paragraphs, and then kind of get your take on some of this. So sure. this is this is from Jim from Extremely uh, Extremely Retained. Some drummers would come into the studio and able to perform their own songs. They were playing like half a song and they couldn't play anymore. They were playing just beyond their level of competence. So in order to get the record done in time, you could send the guy back again and say, do it again, do it again. But we were using samplers to do the kick and snare replacements. The trick was to get all the drums to quote unquote speak. The blast beat especially was a challenge, mostly because they were not often played correctly. It was very difficult. 90% of the drummers were not doing it correctly. I remember subject, suggesting a click track to be used. Um, if these if these could... I'm sorry. If I could record these drums to a click, then all the drum replacements would be so much easier, but it couldn't be done. These guys were not sophisticated enough in their art form yet to get to the point where they can play to a click. That obviously took some years. We were doing it all on a 2-inch tape at the time, and there was no computer editing, so I developed a technique using MIDI sequencer locked into time code and a calculator, and we would sit there and calculate the distance in milliseconds between snare drum hits, ask the drummer how many kick hits are supposed to be between them, then figure out in milliseconds how far the kicks were supposed to be apart, and then had to type them in. This was not visual. It was all DOS-based. We were doing this before Windows. We had a guy working for us named Brian Benzcotter. We called him Super Brian because he was he's a genius-level IQ type guy. We would get Brian to sit there with a calculator, and he would sit there for the rest of the night just calculating kick drums and putting them in because the drummers could not play them. It was not necessarily anyone's fault. It was more that, ju- that they were just really not that prepared yet. Um, so I guess saying that, and then he goes into... Uh, Specific samplers you were using, like the Akai S3000, and um, also digital sampling in your in a TC2290, um, I guess delay lines. But uh, I guess if you can elaborate on that, I can't. I can't even fathom having to deal with something like that and the time it would take. Well, yep. So Super Brian, he was awesome, but uh, I don't. I guess it just depends on some of it, but I guess yeah. So we used, <clears throat> typically use the TC twenty two ninety and a noise 
right in a noise gate to fire it. And then we use like cakewalk, MIDI stuff. And like I said, in time code. And I mean, yep. You know, Brian, well, I used to do it. I mean, I'll say this for most, I mean, I shouldn't say most because Brian did do some. I mean, I don't know, Thomas. Yeah, I mean, some of that stuff, Jim, they did stuff a little differently than me. And, yeah. and um, you know, like, uh, but, but yeah, so that definitely went up some of that went on and it was difficult and even flipping the tape over because you'd get the lag from the output out of the gate. Right. right. So then if you were trigger them and then go backwards, right. You could put a delay on them and then get them in time. So not everything was in a delay, right. Delayed. So you get that gap. But I mean, I never did a lot of snare drums because I thought they always sounded like shit yeah. because you know, you get that, I mean, you can listen to the Exhorter album, which kills me to this day, which they had us do. But, but uh, I mean, um, but the kick drums for sure. But, uh, you know, and I would just say, you know, my recollection is sometimes you had to do it. But most of the bands were pretty good. And I mean, you know, were there times that you had to, yeah, you know what I mean? And, and do that but i mean like the terrorizer world downfall man mm-hmm. i mean i guarantee if you pop that thing up you'll hear lots of mistakes raw but that i mean i fired those things it was an eight track right wow. so i had pete just play straight in and gated both of those and just let it fly onto an eight track because we mixed a two and i mean i don't think you can hear it i, I guess it just depends on the style and if Jim's saying that too, remember he probably did a lot more straight up rock bands, right. meter metal bands and stuff. So, so I mean, you know, but but definitely with getting the time and trying to figure that out in between, you know, it's I think it's much easier nowadays. From a friend of mine, you know, still works with those guys, uh, Mark Prater, and I mean, I don't know if, but he works yeah, with, with the and yeah. Stuff. Sounds familiar, yeah. yeah but, but anyway, but you know, back in the day, yeah, there wasn't a lot of you know at at cakewalk and stuff like that, and using time code and like I said, the twenty two nineties. But but uh, you know, it it was you know time. It took time and things like that. That's absolutely true. But I mean, I guess for me, the biggest thing though was the double bass, though, right? Because that was the whole thing. I mean, even you know, once again, not to say, but like some of the early albums, you know, stuff, you know, like even the early Slayer, Dark Angel, or or you know, the Celtic Frost and stuff. I mean, you could always feel the bass, but there was always drums. But to me, they were a little boomy, especially because our stuff was faster. It was nice to hear the, you know, the, the, the click yeah. and to hear the attack and all that. But, right. you know, but that definitely, I mean, it, you know, what Jim was saying is true. I mean, he was there, but I never messed with the snare drums quite as much because the press rolls, you just get, like I said, is, you know, it's like that first uh, Dream Theater album. You know what I mean? When you hear some of them press rolls that he does, I mean, it's just, you know, it's off triggered and yeah you know my stuff like i said like if you listen to that exhorter it gets crazy at times but 
anyway, but um, but the bass drums for sure. It was nice to be able to hear that if 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 you could, you know what I mean. Well, it almost seems like the maybe because a lot of that's like a statement that we kind of know the, it, but it almost seems like it was a time of innovation right or at least that's the way that i guess as a fan it's almost discussed like is this album triggered or not and sometimes like you know you find out uh deep dark secrets they're like holy shit i never would have guessed because you know usually that's what uh, at least i feel that it's like it's usually pretty obvious when you can cite a, a you know trigger or drum samples, machine or yeah. you know samples of any yeah both are really of the same and so i guess that's more of what i wonder is like was it kind of like you know, you're at a, a point in time where this technology may or may not exist and you're sitting in there, you know, got a session going. It's just like, all right, man, like we got to get these drums done. I got this thing called like <laughs> maybe it wasn't even called triggering. You know what I mean? Where it's like, just you know, like you're going into it. everybody swearing like it's getting it's getting heated. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, you're kind of sitting there like, what do we do to finish this session? It's like, boom, you know what? I got this thing. You could utilize this thing called MIDI. Uh, you know uh, what is what's his name of uh, that did the math equations? Can right, kind of figure yeah. it out because that's really what it is. Even in a Pro Tools, when you can literally look at it, you there's still math and stuff involved. It isn't like everybody thinks it's just so easy. Like you, you got to know there's what a you're visual doing. though. Which yeah, is nice, there's a visual. The visual. It's yeah. only nice though. It ain't gonna. It's 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 nice. It doesn't make it you know any yeah, much it's more. Doing the work. Yes. So you really kind of got to know times and all that yeah. stuff. So I, I guess this that. That's more of my question is it was it something more where you're up against the wall that you had to bust out like this new and improved technology and then kind of sort of innovate it no but i'll well, like i said it's been a long time but i'll, I'll <laughs> say a couple other differences all the good drummers were good and i didn't i didn't not to say i don't care about click tracks because it makes life easier. Yeah. But I never really gave a shit about click tracks because I mean, it's, it's, it's extreme music, man. Yeah, I mean, right. and there's, listen, everything, there's no doubt that everything though click track is better because of all the things Jim said. I don't doubt that, but I'm just saying is that really wasn't ever so much a real, you know, thing is, but I'll say this for the, listen, the drummers that were good, you know, we could name, go through them all they were a lot easier to do. It's only the bad drummers that you had the problem with. Right, right. right. And so that's a whole nother topic. But in general, I'll say this most, I'm not saying that because they were the bands I recorded, but all the big bands, most of those guys were pretty damn good. And like I said is, and that, that was the other thing for me that was back in the day was, we all wanted to hear what the guy played. We wanted to hear if he cheated during the blast. We wanted to see if he really did it. Right. I yeah. mean, it was more of a man up thing, right? Um, I mean, a code among everybody like, man, that guy really does blast when sure. you hear Pete blast or when you hear, you know, uh, a buzz from Cannibal Corpse do the bomb blast or, yeah. you know, Smitty from suffocation. I mean, you pick any of them, right? You really wanted to hear how, I mean, that's the thing is with the clarity of the recording was it wasn't so much, you know, it was so you could get it up front. And plus, you know, I guess it, it does you get a little of the ambience out of there. But the thing was, it was all important. You got to remember, man, that all back in the day, everybody lived around this. I mean, Florida was, I mean, even though it's a long state, right? The Lauderdale, you know, 
malevolent, cynic. Those guys used to drive up, hang out. You know, everybody knew everybody. Everybody watched everybody. Everybody talked shit about everybody. Everybody said who's good and who's bad, right? So, I mean, like I said, sometimes you did it to help out certain bands or whatever to make the record sound better. But the triggering thing to me was just so you could really get them in your face. Yeah, right. You know, but and like I said, so once again it is, but you know, Super Brian was awesome. And listen, Jim and Tom, they were way ahead of the times during the DC the twenty two nineties. I mean, they started that when they were doing a lot of slow metal like I said, the sabotage stuff, the crimson right. glory and things like that. You know what I mean? And it you know, but at the time is it really did make you know, it gave it a nice bottom where it sounded, you know what I mean? I mean, I would say this today. I mean, when I listen to stuff on liquid metal on that, right. On serious, sure. right. I mean, you help me out here, but, but, but I mean, I listen to these recordings and I think, my God, man, they're the best sounding things I've ever heard in my life. I don't know how they can ever do it nowadays. With yeah. equ- I mean, no, because I mean, you don't hear, I mean, to me, it almost gets to the point where it sounds unnatural. Exactly. Because, oh, yeah. Right. Because there's no symbols, right? It's like, yeah. how the hell do you get rid of, like, I'll say this, like, you know, you go to Beneath the Remains, you can bitch about the, you know, <laughs> it's a great album. Yeah. But is it really raw? Maybe there's too much hi-hat and stuff. But back in the day, I mean, you know, unless, you know, I never, how do you get rid of all this stuff? But nowadays, I guess, you know, they're obviously much better engineers than I ever was. But when you listen to stuff, I mean, it sounds so perfect. And it's heavy as hell. It, it almost sounds too perfect to me. Right. And I don't once it but I mean, it sounds incredible. I mean I sit there and I amaze myself all the time and I say, God, man, my stuff sounds horrible <laughs> compared to these guys. But <laughs> but it's just you know, but anyway, it was just I always wanted to hear those guys playing that double bass. I mean, I just loved it. Well and obviously that that was a huge thing, right? Because like you said before the 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 precursors to the extre- the extre- extremity I should say like the Celtic Frost it was very boomy people didn't know uh, kind of the proper EQ to kind of get that bass drum clarity or how to mic it best and those kind of things and so then you come up with these kind of alternate uh, alternate solutions like you guys did with the sampling and you know you you guys did it your way and then obviously you had uh, uh, Thomas Skoksberg uh, sure. and at Sunlight he just had mostly electronic drums you know they would have a real snare but everything was like a d-drum electronic drum including the bass drums so uh so he was able to just do it all midi and get the sounds he wanted and, and whatnot so so you all kind of had the same idea in mind like how do we get clarity and kind of get a cleaner cleaner recording out of it so you can actually hear what these guys are doing at the speeds they're doing it so it's kind of unique to see the different uh tools used well you know it's funny because you're saying uh yeah you all had this or that because i've always um you know tried to explain why i've tried to explain triggering to somebody that doesn't understand recording and i would actually like to see if i'm full of shit or not uh through you scott by, by running that like where it was like it was not so much be- all the time because a drummer needed 
a performance boost. I mean, that could be an essence of it, but it also could be, you know, you're at a time where it's tape, it's harder to, uh, you know, you, you do or don't have visuals. It's, it's just a different time to work in something where everybody's, you got this thing, death metal, you got a guy growling, so he's bassy. You everything's gotta, on 10. Yeah, everything, but everything's on 10, but everything's on 10 in the same frequency departments. Right. So they want kick drums, they want to hear it, and the drummer might be, freaking awesome at it but it's like dude that's not cutting through because this guy's got a low voice he's got a low guitar he's got a low bass like what, it's other. all on top of each other we need something to stand out and that's where a lot of that attack and stuff goes in there and that's where sometimes i wonder and think that the appropriate thing is not because this drummer sucks he needs a trigger and cheats it's just there because this sample is cleaner it's going to cut through better because right. maybe it's there to even complement the organic drum so i don't know was it is there stuff like that too where it's like you know we're, we're i guess my question is was there more of a conscious effort that here we are with this new music death metal that's very very bassy that maybe a lot of the triggering was more so cutting through than it was helping a bad performance no i mean i think in the beginning listen just the, the you know the triggering for me was to you could really get those bass drums clicky and you could get them up in your face without getting like all the amp, super click ambience with the drum and all that, you know what I mean? And you yeah. can make the bass drum sound however you want it. Right. Right. But I mean, yes, is there bad, does it help in bad performances? But I say this, it was always a method of last resort. If you ask me is, I mean, that's the last thing I ever wanted to do was burn. I mean, listen, you had to have a big budget to do that. That yeah, goes right. back to the whole other time. thing is right. I mean, you're, you're talking about paying somebody, you know what I mean? Going into the other studio, uh, like Brian or somebody triggers all the drums. It's the last thing you want to do is, and I mean, I, I mean, cause I really don't, I mean, I think not spending too much time on it, but once again, it's, it was a lot to do with the sound because in yeah. other words, we always, I mean, look at, look at Metallica. It's well known that Lars used to, they used to chop tape and he used to do hundreds of tapes, right. editing stuff. Right. I mean, where you can cut right on a snare drum and you can't tell, you can take the first half. Right. I mean, so a lot of that stuff has been going on forever, but I just liked the sound of it personally. And like I said, is I never did toms. I never did, I rarely did snares. And I mean, I guess just to, listen, uh, Thomas over in Sweden. I mean, listen, the, the Entombed album, right? Entombed yeah. album, I think he did. Those are incredible, right? But I, I will just say this looking back on it. If I told Steve Ashim to play uh, a, a drum pad, he punched me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> He just tell me I'm full of shit. And I'm not saying that that's the right approach, but I'm just saying is that really wasn't ever an option. Right. I never yeah. even thought of that. But you said that because I mean, I can even remember trying to tell guys like to put smaller hi hats. So they splashed as less and they just right. tell me to go fuck. They tell me to go fuck myself. <laughs> right? I mean, nine out of 10 times. And I mean, is listen, I'll go back to the whole thing is it's, it's bad music for bad people or it sounds bad. Right? I mean, that's what we like the extremeness of it. Right. Yeah. We don't want it to sound like, 
you know, but at the same time is you want it to sound like you paid in my always opinion was you want to just make it sound like someone paid money for it. Right, right? right. But at the same time is right. It's not supposed to sound all clean and all that. I mean, like I said, is some of the new records today, I mean, they sound amazing, but I would never, maybe I can't do it. And maybe that's why I say it, but I would never want my stuff to sound that clean because right. to me it's too processed. It's lifeless. I, yeah. It's a little lifeless. No, no, but, and this, it sounds incredible, right? But, you know, but anyway, it's just different ways of doing it. But like I said, when you mentioned, you know, because I think the Dooms, some of those first ones and, you know, uh, some of the heaviest albums ever, I mean, they're incredible. But I just, I never even, the only reason I say that, you know, about the drum pads is I never even had that thought in my head. Right. I mean, because the guys just weren't into that. I mean, you know. Right. Well, that makes sense, and it's it's just kind of cool though to see the innovations that were used yeah. by different people but, and, and how they yeah. achieved you know the goal that they were trying to reach. Yeah. Yeah, but if it works, listen, and if your drummer wants to do that, then there's nothing wrong with it at all. Go right. for it. I mean, it's a great solution, right? But you know, the old saying there's a million ways to a cat. Exactly. But, but anyway, so. Well, uh, being a drummer myself and having gone to, uh, I, I went to music school. In Los Angeles and whatnot, so I'm uh, partial uh, to to good drummers. But instead of going over some bad ones, I would like to know wh- who are the drummers that like blew your mind. They're like, this is incredible. I can't believe this guy is doing this and this perfect and keeping this time and as fast and clean as they were. Obviously, you mentioned mentioned uh, Peter Pete Sandoval uh, being maybe one of those guys. But who are the guys that you just remember? You know, kind of like uh, putting the hair back, so to speak. Well, well, listen, I, I mean, I think as far as like being steady, I mean, Don Tardy from obituary, I mean, he's rock solid, just, you know, plays down a big groove fast, but just really solid double bass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Steve from atheist, he was, you know, a band that, you know, the passing or Roger, you know, uh, he was a great drummer. I mean, now he was, you know, very technical and very unique. And then, I mean, how can you, you know, uh, Sean Reiner, I right. mean, incredible. Yeah. I mean, that guy, you know, <laughs> anyway, he was great. And, uh, so, yeah, yeah. But, um, it's sad to hear his passing for sure. Yeah, but um, you know, Pete from Orbit. I mean, he was incredible. You know, uh, Alex from uh, Malevolent. Yeah, Alex from the Malevolent. Alejandro. Come on, he was <laughs> He's out of control. He was great. Yeah. You know, like I said, Smitty and Buzz from Cannibal Corpse. You know, they they had the bomb blast. I mean, they were great. I mean, but. You know, Sean Reiner, if you had to pick a guy that you could say could play anything, I mean, he was probably technically, you know, more further along than anybody. I mean, not and at that such that a young age, such a young age at the time, and still just yeah. so incredible. You know, and Igor, listen, from Sepultura, he was killer. You know what I mean? Right. He had a definitely unique style with the, more of the Brazilian tribal and stuff. But, but, you know, I guess, you know, mentioned. 
who's good, but I'll just say this, right? To me, it never really mattered <laughs> if you could play fast or if you could play slow, but if you sounded good doing it, right? Right? You know, I mean, let's go look at look at Terry Butler, right? I mean, that guy's like rock steady, right? You know, he's not he's the opposite of Steve DeGiorgio, right? Right? But they're both killer. They're yeah. both just different, right? But the thing is, is that I mean, I'd say this to anybody listening that really is trying to you know get anything out of this is if you have a band, write something good that you can play right right right. don't try i mean if you can't play super fast then go back and practice till you can play super fast sure. because i mean there are a lot of great slow bands trouble right yeah. box habit i mean you <laughs> obituary i mean whatever i'm just saying is you know that was the biggest thing probably back in the day when you going back to your thing of fixing drums and stuff like that was you know the the tendency was to blast to be the fastest to do that and some guys could do it better than others and some guys needed help right and i would just say this no matter what genre of music you're in just know your limitations and do it and you know keep practicing I mean. right well thanks scott um Man, so many questions. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I guess I, this is one I'm just throwing in really quick. But what was it? Your first big job what, was your first kind of where they left you on your own, where you said, "Hey, Scott, you want to take this?" I, I I know I read something recently where Jim was saying he sent you to Brazil to do the uh, beneath the remains because he wasn't going to Brazil to do that. You know, he had a family obviously, and and you were a bit younger and, and didn't have anything holding you down. Was that like the the first real big one where you're, you're like? It's all on your shoulders, and, and you're in a kind of uh, unfamiliar environment in a, in a studio you're not familiar with, or or would you say there's one before that where it was a little bit uh, uh, kind of thrown into the fire? No, I mean I think maybe, but yes, that's probably it. I mean maybe Atheist was done, but uh, you know Rick Miller was doing Executioner, you know, slowly, and they had bounced, you know, it was done on an eight track, so. They had bounced, I think, most of the drums, guitar and bass down two or four tracks, and then we were doing vocals and some leads and stuff. But with like a bit, I mean, with Sepultura, I mean, you know, I don't know, it's probably documented out there. Well, documented is that, once again, this goes back to the original thing about a lot of people didn't give a shit about death metal and thought it was sucked. So here was Sepultura, a Brazilian band, and they, you know, Monty, and I'm sure, you know, Boro Boy, yeah. right? They were, you know, very influential in getting those guys off Cucamela on the Roadrunner. But they, they went around, listen, they went around to all the big guys, Randy Burns, John Cunaberte, uh, I forget the guy's name, the Testament guy up in New York or whatever, did like the first Testament records. He had a big following and a lot of these guys, and there wasn't any money, you know, it was a small record. They all, nobody really liked the band. They all thought they were shit death metal band, basically <laughs> the growling vocals. And it was in Brazil and it was over Christmas. And I was like, you know, I remember the, obituary guys had turned me on to um the record before that they had out on Cougamello uh I forget. but 
the the one before beneath the remains. And I was like, ah, these guys are cool. And I was like, I never been to Brazil. I'm young. I ain't got a family and right. hell, it'd be a lot of fun. Right. And, um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was it. You know what I mean? And they really, I mean, I was the engineer of last resort to be honest with you. Right. right. I mean, they couldn't find really anybody. And, you know, the whiplash guys that said I was cool and uh, everybody. So they were like, you know, as our president would say, what the hell do you have to lose? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I went down there and it was, a, you know, it was awesome. And, you know, they were cool guys and it was a good time. And it came out pretty good, I hope. And, you know, and uh, it was nice, favorite. but it was a little different, you know what I mean, going down there. So Yeah, I bet. And did you have an assistant there to kind of help you through? And uh... Well, they had – so we were recording in a place called Nas Nuvens, which is – I guess it means in the clouds. But it's some – he's a famous, um, you know, uh, Brazilian samba or something, Gilberto Ju. And uh, he's been – I mean, he's an old guy. I don't know if he's still even alive. But, I mean, you know – for classical Brazilian samba music or something, whatever. So we would record at night and, um, there really wasn't, I mean, they had a guy there, but the biggest thing I needed was a translator. Right. One of Sepulter, uh, one of their buddies translated, helped translate because that was probably one of the hardest things. You know, I've said before, is it like, you know, it, if we're talking, it's easy to say, you know, are you hungry or I got to go to the bathroom or I want to drink. I mean, right. everybody can get that but through translation, right? I mean, you can flip that. And But, you know, if you're trying to talk about like a snare drum sound or, you know, a tom sound or something, it's a little harder. Tough, I mean, yeah. and um, so that's harder to abstract concepts like that or harder. But um Anyway, so, but, uh, you know, and that was it. And that probably was one of the bigger ones, you know, I mean, obviously in the beginning and I mean, you know, look how big they became. And like I said, as it goes back to my point is if you go back those days, right. I mean, bands like Anthrax, I mean, Slayer was always big, but Metallica, but the thrash bands, you know, were more in vogue and the death metal stuff was kind of like the black sheep or the whatever. Right. I mean, I think at the time, most people thought it was a passing phase that like, you know, so, but, but I mean, look at Sepultura. I mean, they, you know, they're a big band, right? When it it broke you as well. I think after people heard that record, that's when a lot of stuff started uh, coming your way. I think so, because, I mean, be honest with, I mean, uh, bands, I mean, the way, from my experience, the way it works is bands either want to hire you because the record label tells you you got to hire this guy or you recorded their favorite record. So, I mean, it's like if you dug the Sepulchre record or you dug the obituary or whatever, then, you know, then you probably liked it or the label said, hey, you know, we want you to use this guy. And, you know, we did. Morrison did pick up quite a big reputation. I mean, at the end, there was kind of a backlash against it, you know, because everything they say sounds the same. But but at the time is, you know, it was a very popular place, you know. 
was that something like when you're going through this and establishing, you know, maybe even some techniques, though, did you because you said like you said, picking up on that note of it's sounding the same or something. I do feel that there is kind of a uh, almost a more a sound quality, no matter who the producer was. So if you listen to like Iced Earth or if you listen to Obituary or, you know, Executioner or whatever, like it's it's definitely yeah, you can tell it's a more sound quality. But then, obviously, the producer or the engineer will change that. I'm sure that gives it a different tone. Character, yeah. So was, but when it comes to that whole sound, the same thing is like, there's so much that could be said about that, though, too, because it could be the board. You know, a lot of this, you know, obviously, you're using the same rooms and equipment and all Mike's, that, and right. that's, that's where your sound's largely going to come from. Um, so, But, like, were there any kind of templates, though, uh, established, though, that you maybe you can fast-pass certain things? I don't, I don't I mean... I don't know about, I mean, well, I'd say templates, like, you know, you always start and you record the drums first, right? And then you scratch guitars and bass and then overlay guitars, right? And then, yeah. you know, in between, fix some kick drums or, you know, redo the bass or, you know, re redo the rhythm guitars, like I said, and then leads. So, I mean, that itself usually is a template. I mean, it's just rock and roll metal, right? So, right. I mean... You're limited in your, I mean, uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, I get the whole argument that everything sounded the same uh, eventually, but at the same time is the, the genre of music is all the same. Well, that's right? what they Pretty wanted, much. right? That's what they came to you for. Yes. Yes. Right. So, but, and at the same, I mean, is, you know, uh, I guess, I guess you are using the same outboard effects, same compressors, right? Tape machine, right? Yes. The board. Yeah. You had a solid state logic, and then we had a sound design, you know, uh, in the other room. But so, yeah, I mean, it's very in the room. I mean, believe it or not, rooms are going to have a good sounder. I mean, I think right. our sound, Tom's room, sounded really good. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, is I suppose everything can sound samey, and you go about things the same way, even though bands sound different. But, uh, I mean, in fairness, I'll, like I said, is I'll say this is, you know, there were a glut of bands at Roadrunner, Metal Blade, Earache, everybody signed, right, when it became popular. And so eventually, I mean, like, you know, the, at the end there, you know, you could say, oh, there's the Marvin Angel riff, you know, there's the Slayer riff, you know, there's the, you know, the Sepulter riff, the Obituary, you know, I mean, you could, a lot of the newer bands that were coming out, right? you could tell who their influences were sure. and, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying is that leads to some sameness and, you know, absolutely guys, do we get in the same habit? We, I think we all are, as Glenn Benton would say, creatures of habit, right. you know, right. uh, but, um, you know, so like you said, though, what, and like you said, you know, it's all rock and roll. We're all just doing this thing. I'm, I'm a fan. You know, you're kind of just getting lumped in and you're doing your job and stuff. So, like, where, what was your reaction that now here you are getting notoriety for really being the guy in charge of the sound? You're, you're, you're getting a gig, essentially. And so all of a sudden, then out of nowhere is you're hearing from Norway, uh, you know, with mayhem and, <laughs> right. and doing the whole no mosh, no chords no thing. It's yeah. just kind of like... I would have to imagine, from your perspective, there had to at least be somewhat of a like, what the like, what the hell does this have to do with me? I'm yeah, just the guy who records job, this. Right. So, like, when you like, what 
what tipped you off that there was even something going on, like, I guess, bad-mouthing your name or, or even worse? Oh, well, I mean, it became... Listen, I mean, you know, it becomes quite obvious. I remember like when the suffocation album came out, you know, I forget the guy that wrote it, but you know, he was good friends with Monty. And I mean, he just, just buried me in the band, right. Saying, you know, the only reason you can tell their differences in the songs, I think back in the day was like, cause there are gaps between them and it just sounds like every other thing, and, you know, things like that. And I mean, I'll say this, right. You know, first you get pissed off right and then i mean it's like you know what are you gonna do right i mean <laughs> i mean there's not much you can do about it and that's you know to be honest that's when you know a scene is probably starting to change right diversify yeah. or die off or something because like you said when all the you know i'll be honest with you right like with mayhem and those guys i, I mean i probably talked shit about them in the past not meaning to but like i always thought they looked killer but I thought most of them didn't play well. Right. Right. So, I mean, is it not, and you know, to all my Norwegian brethren, I don't, sorry, but at the time is that's back to the playing part. It was, is like, I thought they looked super evil, super cool with stage presence, but I really, I didn't think they played as good as some of the American bands. And I'm not trying to sound nationalistic, but to me, it was all, like I said, going back to the whole thing, we always were, it was important to play well, but you know, back to the thing is, you know, whatever, just, you know, maybe it was a scene and too many bands. And like I said, that's why it, maybe it was just time for Scott Burns to take a step back because really, <laughs> it really was all about the bands, right? right? I mean, I still laugh to this day when people say these things about me, how influential and stuff. I was just a guy, right? right. And I mean, it, listen. The only, you guys say you record, right? The only difference between me and you recording is that there happened to be a scene where I worked at, right? Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm being honest, right? There's yeah. a lot of great engineers out there, right, that don't have a scene. And I mean, I just was lucky that I liked it and I was the right guy at the right time, I guess, or I was the guy at the time to everybody that doesn't like my stuff. Right. <laughs> but, so it's just, I think it's overrated. I mean, once again, is the, you know, I think it's overrated saying how good somebody is. These bands were good. And hopefully that's the one, you know, another thing I just say to any engineers out there is just be a conduit to the guy that's recording, to the artist, right. to make him feel comfortable, to make him want to put down, I mean, because it's all art, right? right? I mean, to put down his music, her music on tape and feel good about it when they walk out the door, right? right. Don't sit there and have the guy say, you know, that engineer's an asshole, he never listens to me, right? I mean, you know, they're the ones, no matter what. I mean, there are things that I regret, you know, like I said, you know, uh, certain things is because they, these guys are the ones that are going to live with that album for 34 years. Right, right. <laughs> I, I'm done. I mean, to be brutal, I got paid and I left and I tried my best, but, you know, they're the ones. Yeah, you that could are, walk you know, away from it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you just kind of wrap up the whole mayhem thing. Um, first off, I would say, you know, when, when you're at the top, uh, being you were at the top at the time, everyone's coming to you for jobs and everything, there's only one way. To, place to go when you're on the top and that's the fall so you know i guess that yeah. was bound to happen it's just funny that it happened to you um 
But why not anybody else at Morrison? Well, like, well, why, it's just why is it? That, I mean, I guess it's obvious got, there. He right? got thrown into it, whereas yeah. like he he was just doing his job. You know, it wasn't like he's flying yeah, yeah. some flag. You know, and, and being this torchbearer. But at the same at the same token, I think you said something really important earlier, Scott. And you were saying like the music's extreme, right? Um, it shouldn't necessarily sound mm. good, and that music sounds too good now. And I think that whole black metal thing was that exactly that is that they wanted to. Say they were essentially saying that you're you were doing too good. At yeah, job. you're doing too good, <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, these bass drums shouldn't sound like this, and it should sound more extreme. And they were kind of going back to the whole the whole punk rock attitude, and you know we want to uh-huh. sound like this. We want to sound like we sound in a practice room, and if we're shitty, well, fine, we're shitty, but you know it's about attitude and it's about this and that. So so I it's kind of interesting that um, you know they're they're essentially saying just the same thing you are. It just so happens that you were in a position of hey, I'm getting paid to make these guys sound good and so that you can hear what they're playing and everything. So obviously it wasn't thoughtfully um, uh, related yeah. in, the, in those ways. You know, obviously it was, it was attacked in, in different ways, just being, you know, that culmination of everything at the time. But it's just kind of interesting to kind of look back now and, and look at it that way. I mean, if I can make one last comment now that you mentioned that, sure. right? Like, I'll give you a, you know, moment of honesty, right? When I did Napalm Death, right, I was excited to do them, guys. They were cool, right? And I know they were going more death metal at the time. But, I mean, we, you know, and he's a great guy, but Mick Harris. He oh, hates yeah. that record. He hates the record. And I remember sitting, and, and just, you know, me saying that my stuff sounds more raw, a lot of people bitched at me and bitched about that out in Harmony Corruption that said I made Napalm Death sound too clean and too metal. Right. And I can remember, we can go back to Entombed, I can remember sitting in my truck and Mick Harris hated the record, the mixes. He put in, he gave me his Entombed tape, right? Said, this is what I want it to sound like. He didn't like it at all. Wow. Right. And I mean, you know, and listen, I mean, he, I can, you know, at the time I was like, you know, I thought, sounded good but whatever so maybe it wasn't as extreme as in tomb but they were trying to change and go you know whatever but you know how can you argue with mick i mean he's like the godfather of grindcore and stuff right. like that but i just mean is that everybody has a different perspective sure. on things and and i mean your point was well taken is that you know some people thought my stuff was too clean exactly you know right but so anyway but you know the beauty of life is that everybody can be different and there's always a new band that comes out and there's something different. You but know? And, did any of that, uh, like attack, I guess it is like, did any of that get like to a point that maybe it was like, you were, you were worried about anything? Like were they, yeah, were what, they like, getting letters or yeah, other than putting you on guys? the back of a record? Like that's all I really kind of know about. Like, did they do anything else or was that about it? No, I mean, no, I don't, I remember, you know, I remember it was a drag because, you know, I mean, it's just part of the territory, but I never asked to be spoken nicely and then I never asked to be attacked, but it wasn't a big deal at the time. I think, you know, it's a lot of bluster. Like, you know, you go back to Glenn Benton, right? It's a lot of bluster. You know what I mean? There's, but, um, well, that was what I was going to say. Was it kind of, because it seems like a little bit of, it was more so maybe like, it seemed like it was possible that it had maybe more of like Glenn doing stuff. Because I know obviously like the Mayhem guys or whatever had, you know, they didn't really like Glenn. There's the whole 
Glenn committing suicide, thirties thing, oh, and two, like a lot of yeah. yeah. So a lot of that I, I think coincides with. I mean, I don't have all the histories and stories straight, and maybe meshing a few things together. And so it just seemed like maybe that could also be. But I, you know, more curiously, yeah, behind the scenes, like was it more than just a putting you on the back of a record? Because if it was, like that almost like highlights yeah. how. It makes it funnier to me because it's like, what a cheap shot. <laughs> like, what a pussy. Yeah, going after this producer. <laughs> that you're like, never going to meet and then you're in Norway. It almost it almost kind of plays into some of the narrative of what some people say about Euronymous. Right, right, right. Nah, but listen, they, I'll say this in their defense, right? They were a younger generation and they were trying to do something more extreme right. than the, the, the bands. And that was the, listen, that was the harder part is how are you going to play faster than, say, like deicide or morbid angel or suffocation right. i mean you can only play humanly so fast i mean you yeah. can do tricks like you know like you're talking about i don't know dying fetus, ass suck dying fetus or some of the bands that you know would speed up stuff but um you know but I, I don't i i don't you know i i, I so in a way it's okay i mean like i said that was their way and you know they were just, it means I look at they're just revolting against something that they thought, just like when some of the death metal bands thought Metallica was lame, right. and Slayer used to be heavy. It's yeah. just the next step. It's yeah. okay. That's totally true. It's it just true. became, it's just funny that you became the scapegoat rather than a Slayer or, or a Metallica. It was right. Scott Burns. It wasn't, yes, it wasn't obituary. You, right. you're, you're so guilty for I mean, some of it too is like some of the credits that you even look at. Like you're not always producer, you're not always engineer, you're your mixer, your producer, your engineer. Like so, it's like it isn't always you for any of this. But but like you said, it it I think it's exactly what you said. It's basically they're just taking to the next. What are you going to do next? Right. And that's why I even made that remark because it does kind of play to a lot of what people said. Euronymous was is you know more so full of shit and just kind of fluffing feathers well, to make himself. To push the yeah, push. Bit. He's more so. He's he was a good button pusher. Pusher. He wasn't button exactly pusher. the extremist that he made himself out to yeah, be. And this right. might have been that because when he put it at the end of the day, you put a guy's picture on the back of a record, an American guy from florida i don't i'm pretty sure euronymous was never in florida so it's kind of yeah. like what a what a cheap shot <laughs> yeah just funny just yeah. funny looking back but yeah, yeah. we got yeah. your totally. take so uh funny you brought up mick harris on your own because uh when when i put made those posts yesterday i got a ton of uh fan question response and one of the one of the guys was asking like dude you got to ask him about how much trouble you had with mick harris we got to get some stories so it's kind of cool that you kind of brought that on your own was it more of just him complaining about the overall sound or was he just such an intense character during the recordings that it was causing maybe problems in the studio as well and just trying to trying to work yeah i mean i think it's both is i don't think he really liked the direction the band was going in you know what i mean i think uh you know i think they wanted him to play more uh more like a death metal drummer, whereas he just wanted to play his style. So that created some friction there. And then, like I said, is he, they, they wanted the album just to be super extreme. And, and they thought, you know, I mean, he wanted it to be super extreme and just thought it was too polished and, you know, just like a standard death metal album. And like I said, he, he was digging entombed at the time and wanted it sound, you know, like that's what he liked. So, you know, but there was conflict within the band as well. And, um, you know, so, but like I said, it's just life and you win some, you lose some. And, you know, and, and I'll be, listen, I'll be honest with you. Like, 
I probably wasn't as uh, it's easy to step back now and look at things and stuff like that. And, yeah. But at the same time, when the band, when most of the band is feeling one way, it's harder to, you know, it's harder when one guy is the odd guy out. And I, right. like I said, listen, he's the, uh, you know, he's, <laughs> you know, king of grind. So it's yeah. hard to argue, you know, I mean, but his vision and, Everybody else's vision at the time was a little different, you know? Well, I love that record, and I'm glad it came out the way it came out. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. know any different anyway. But uh, <laughs> I've always been – that's probably my favorite uh, Napalm. So so cheers yeah. to you on that one. Um, I do have some other fan questions if we want to kind of stick with the fan questions here for a little bit. Um, actually, a band on my label, um, Acurian who features, uh, it was kind of after your time, but features members of Cryptopsy, Neuraxis, and one of the guys is in Cattle, Decap- Cattle Decapitation now. But uh, he had asked about Legion, about recording that. He said uh, the record just sounded so ferocious. He said, was there any um, effort to kind of to really bring that out, or, and, or was it just kind of organically what happened? No, I think that record is just uh, those crazy technical riffs that they wrote. I mean, it was, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, uh, the Hoffman brothers just went over the top on, you know, trying to be super tech and, uh, you know, write stuff that, you know, because it's probably a little less catchy than the, you know the first one yeah, and all that. We actually but, prefer the first one, me and Reaper. But yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of people. It's kind of a fifty-fifty split. We we actually did a kind of album battle um, over the last couple of weeks, and and pretty much down the middle, people are either saying Legion or or self-titled. And uh, again, we like the first one just because I feel like it's more mem- memorable. It's a little more catchy. There's some some, some kind of hooks in there, even though it's death metal. But where I do agree is I I do think Legion is more extreme and a little bit more ferocious. I mean, listen, there's no doubt. The first one is much more memorable, right? Yeah, you right. can sing Sacrificial Suicide, I can't, 30 years later, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> right? Jim Jones, you know, drink. Yeah. You know, I mean, but, but Legion, that was, once again, is, I think the Hoffmans, they definitely wanted to go super technical. I think at the time, people, you know, they were catching some grief, maybe, that, like, some people said they were sloppy live or things like that, perhaps, or, I don't know, I mean, Steve, I don't say that, but I think, you know, that they definitely want a direction, right? I don't know. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a great album, but it, it's definitely more technical and probably less memorable than the first one. But right. I can see, you know, some, some guys just want pure technical stuff, right? So there's, there's, you know, like I said, just depends what side you're on. Sure. Um, there's some good fan questions here, to be honest. So I'm going to kind of read through some of these. If there was to be any band that could convince you to come out of retirement and say, "Hey, Scott, get back behind the board, or at least be cons- at least consult on this," what what band would it be for you? So it's not a question of that. It's not, I mean, I mean, I talked to the Psychotic Waltz guys about doing something, but it didn't work out. Right? It's not that I don't want to do it or don't. It's just what do I have to offer? I, I mean, this way is I'll be honest. I, I would have to hire an engineer because I don't even know how to run. I mean, listen, I'll be honest with you, right? I don't know how to run a Pro Tools rig, right? I don't know a lot of the stuff. Now, sure, I guess equalizer and a board, mic inputs, line inputs, things like that, compression, 
Yes, microphones. But as far as all the tools that are used today, and, you know, what I mean, I just, it's a nice thought, but, you know, come on. Like I said, there's a lot of good engineers out there. There's nothing special about me, but thank you very much. Well, you'd be surprised. You get a lot of work. Actually, it's funny. One of, oh, one of the questions, yeah. uh, one of the questions I got were like, hey, would you work with us? <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't know about that. But uh, I thought it was a cool question. What do you got? It is. No, I, it's nice <laughs> to say. And it, listen, it would be fun. Yeah. I, I, I have to tell you, many nights over sitting having a vodka thinking it would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Do I miss it? Every day, right? But at the same time, is you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, it's it's complicated because, well, you know, anyway. Well, I was saying, and you're kind of back to, it's funny because when you started, you were you had low, low budgets. And then as, as the scene grew, obviously those budgets increased, and now you're almost back to where you started. <laughs> if, if someone was offering you something, it'd be back to that, you know, oh, can we give you five grand for this record? I mean, the budgets are, again, small because anyone in their bedroom can record. So the, the yeah. need for those big, large, amazing studios are, you know, obviously it's, a, it's just a different time. Well, so I'm, but I, I'm curious though. When you say like you wouldn't be able to, like you don't know how a Pro Tools rig or something works and all that. Like you said, you're a computer uh, programmer, so I, like, I would imagine that like pick it up pretty quick. You'd pick it up rather quickly and then find out a lot of the stuff are in there. So like, and and and, but people have had to like maybe have reached out and stuff. Like, so there's hasn't been anything that like just tickles your fancy for it. Like, there's. I don't know. Is is it really solely like I don't know what to do that holds you up through doing that, or is there there's just more to it? Well, Craig, I don't know. I mean, I just mean as this is, I really don't get any offers. And oh. I, I mean, because how are you going to get a hold of me? And second of all, right. is like I said, it's a pro tool ring. Listen, it's one thing to say you can figure something out, but something on a short you know, when you have a budget and something like that is because I would not feel comfortable sitting there. Uh, um, you know, when somebody's paying me and they're going to make something for the rest of their lives, being, you know, them being the guinea pig, right? Yeah. I mean, if anything, I'll be honest with you, I do something like terrorizer, stuff like that, where it's almost all live and just capture the moment and see what you get good out of it, right? right, right. Instead of multi-tracking and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong, obviously there's nothing wrong with it, but, uh, you know, the live feel for me is probably with you know, doing uh, more extreme stuff is more fun to me than in yeah. capturing something than right. sitting there, you know, and painstakingly going over, punching in everybody's stuff. I mean, but but it, like I said, is, uh, you know, it's just, if you haven't done something, you know, like riding a bike, but at the same time is you're paying someone. And I mean, you know, you'd have to have somebody in a studio that I, I could trust, but I know would help me out. and. And like I said, is but but I really think it goes back to the question of I mean, you know, it's not like I contain magic, right? There's nobody. It's just I mean, everybody. If you're a good band, you're a good band, and just find a guy that you like to work with, right? Right. Yeah. Um, back in the day, as, as things were uh, blowing up for you, and as you were really busy, were there any bands that you had to turn down, uh, whether? time or, or for other reasons where you just weren't able to I mean, maybe a lot of it was just fitting it in in your schedule but were there times where you're just like I can't work with these guys or I don't want to work with these guys or, or what what the case was no I don't I mean listen I think it would only be the case of I mean the only thing is I would never work like 
there was some like skinhead, some uh, like uh, bands that were racist or whatever that I wanted nothing to do with. That right. I, I mean, a couple times I said no, I don't like what they have to say on record. But other than that, is that no? I mean, I never, <laughs> I never really tried to pass judgment. If they wanted to come and then they practiced, let you know, they come and have it and record something and let's make the best of it and let's try it. And as long as the schedule fit in, then it was okay. Right. And it was fun. Like I said, is, you know, and I mean, eventually, you know, sometimes you got, you know, when the bands perhaps weren't that proficient or something like that or whatever, you know, begins maybe to take its toll. But overall, I just say, you know, it's not my, to pass judgment, you know, whatever, let's just let them record. And like I said, make a record. I mean, you know, do you have like the Scott Burns shrine then? Like, do you like hold, you know, a piece of your, your, you know, your work. So like, obviously this is something that could be easily obtainable where you can literally buy the record. Like, do you have copies of uh, a lot of the stuff that you've done or? No, I don't have any real. I have them on Spotify, and I have a few things. But I mean, I just listen to them because it's, you know, I'll be honest, it's painful for me to listen to them because I, I hear mistakes that I yeah, make. Right. <laughs> right. So I mean, it's like I brought up the Exhorter album with the snare drum that had a trigger that yeah. you know bothers me. When I that's one of my favorite albums of all time. But I did. but <laughs> you know, but things like that. But like I said, is so. I mean, I. To listen to stuff every here and there, bits and pieces, but you know, but um, you know, but like I said, is you know, I you know, to me, it's more about I have memories, and I just play it on Spotify when I want to hear. So, so I know this would be difficult for you, uh, being that you did you know 135 records, some amount of records, but um, if you had to. Uh, I don't want to put you in a bad place. I'm kind of looking for, you know, people are asking, what are your top three? What are your top five? And I, and I know that's probably like children, right? But what are, I guess if I was to yeah. pose the question differently, what are the ones that stand out the most for you? Maybe you don't have to pick a favorite, those kind of things, but what are the ones that really stand out to you if you were to name just a couple um, that you're really, really extremely proud of? Well, I'll say this. Almost any band, you pick them. Their first album was great. Yeah. Obituary, Slowly Rewrought. That was killer. No doubt. I mean, when John came out, the effects, I mean, they had a sound, right? Right. The first Deicide, that was killer, man. I mean, Glenn was great, and it was catchy. They were good. I mean, the first Cannibal Corpse, eating back, you know, eating, right? You know, yeah. poor child on the leg, poor child on the way, won't live another day. You know, that, I mean, Jack wrote, they wrote great song. I yeah. mean, Barnes was great. Um, you know, listen, the, you know, Spiritual Healing was a great album, right? Even though it's simplistic by certain things. I love that And to come back, sure, with Billy and Terry, I mean, it, you know, then, then to come back, you know, uh, you know, with human, with Sean and them. I mean, that was the beauty of Chalk was, is that you know the band lineup always changed. I mean, you know, all like I said is, you know, the Ten Commandments by Malevolent Creation was a great album in my opinion. I liked the Terrorizer World Downfall. I mean, if I could pick, I mean, I really liked 
a lot of things about that. <laughs> I mean, for, I mean, the way it was done to the songs, I mean, I liked, you know, had the grind element. That was a good one. But, you know, I, I think most of the first records of the second ones were all good. And not that the other ones down the line weren't, but that's what made the first Atheist. I mean, Roger from Atheist, the yeah. bass player. You know, look, that guy was incredible. Incredible. And in a different way from the Cynic guys, because, you know, the Cynic guys could write out everything. And I don't know if Roger could write anything like musically, but he could play anything and come up with these incredible riffs. I mean, you know, and Rand stringing his guitar upside down, you know, I mean, they had a unique sound, right? I mean, but, but you know, like I said, is all those, but well, all can, those bands. Go ahead, I was going to say, can you compartmentalize? I have a question actually getting back to spiritual healing. So I kind of trying to keep this train, train of thought together. But before I get to that, uh, if you could compartmentalize, or I don't know if you can, um, kind of the favorites between, you know, all the ones that you're mentioning, all fantastic. But I guess uh, if we were to kind of separate the, the sonic quality or the production side, like if you were to say, these are the mo- I'm the most proud of the sound I was able to achieve. So, because for me, that's kind of a fan of all of these bands and everything that you've done. I'm definitely a Scott Burns disciple. Where I know, you know, you got your haters out there, but I'm I'm one that flies the flag for you. I would say the the ones that really strike me as I was like, holy shit, Scott's really reached a new level here, or at least maybe with the band, obviously, because it takes you and the band to get there. It, it were um, you know, when I heard, obviously, the bleeding was a really, really special one for a lot of reasons. The songs were sure. right, the production was right, but it sound. It, the cool part was it was cool to see the band's evolution, and I'd like to think it was cool to see your evolution. And maybe it had to do with you had worked, you had the opportunity to work with that band multiple albums, and so you were able to kind of not only see them grow and, and get better, but you were obviously honing your craft. But uh, getting back to kind of my favorite uh, Sonic records would be that cannibal corpse obviously actually the first six feet under i really love the the drum tones you got um i really think it's got this um boombastic quality uh while sounding natural and um and world demise i it's it just sounds so friggin' heavy so friggin' killer again while sounding organic and so those for me are, are the productions now while i have an affinity to a lot of the older stuff we talked about the malevolent creations and the harmony corruptions you know obviously it didn't sound sonically as good as some of the ones i just mentioned so for me it's easy for me to kind of pick out some of the ones that i thought were, were a sonic achievement so if we were to kind of look at it from that angle would that change your perspective of, of what you'd pick Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for sure the bleeding, you know, that that's one of the better Cannibal Corpse. I mean, you know, I, we talk all this time, we haven't really mentioned, like, Alex. You know, I mean, he's the best right. bass, incredible bass player with his technique. You know what I mean? Playing with four fingers. Right. And, but, you know, if I, but, but, you know, I, I don't know, sonic quality. I mean, it's, <laughs> I guess, you know, in some, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's sorry to put you on the spot, but, you know, World Demise does sound, I think, good, right? That was, we spent a lot of money on that, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, it played around. We did with, there's some synth and some, you know, some samples. low bass samples drops in there and things like that. And, 
you know, but I don't, <laughs> it's hard for me to say, I mean, you know, what, you know, because, you know, I don't know. I, some, I hear mistakes in everything I've done. So, I mean, it's a lot of it. I don't, you know what I mean, say, but I think spiritual healing sounds heavy. Right. I mean, I like the sound of that, you know, maybe it's the riffs and stuff like that, but, and, you know, I don't know. Well, speaking of spiritual healing sounding heavy, I can go, kind of go to my question. Was and I know you had mentioned this at one point or another, where you would always double track guitars, but then you started just going with uh, one one track per channel. Um, was that one of the albums you started actually cutting back down? I, I don't recall, Thomas. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I mean, I think we always double tracked everything. Okay. I mean, you know, I'm almost positive we almost everything was double tracked. I mean, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's very few times unless it was like somebody faster stuff. I would think that we wouldn't, but I, I'm almost positive. I mean, even all the corpse stuff and Legion and stuff like that was all double tracked. Okay, I mean, cool. I mean, that was like a de facto. Right. Know, just something that you did. Cutter. Sure. Yeah. Um, spiritual healing really standed up, st- stood out for me, um, because of James, James Murphy's, been one of my favorite guitarists in the genre i mean since i was a kid and and i'm fortunate enough to call him a friend now it's just kind of one of those things that that happened Uh, you know one of those rare things but i I just always loved his playing you know i was interested too because you said there uh for a second ago like you know about the first albums you know first albums were great and stuff and that's very much i think a lot of conversation that happens between fans you know especially of this music that's like you know a lot of the first album the demo all that kind of stuff so i think it's an interesting uh, opportunity to ask somebody that was really largely playing into the sound of it rather than being the band that's writing these songs like what do you think that element is of why like the early material would be in a lot of ways sometimes the favorites of fur fans because like things are fresh or yeah i don't know i mean I don't know. I'm not saying that the first. No, I know, for, but but, but you know what I mean. Like a lot of people are like that, though. That that you know, don't find that. Right. I mean, I think because they were they these bands were original, and so when you hear them for the first time, it sounds even more original, right? I mean, or it yeah. sounds original, and then the second time, you know what I mean? You have a flavor for them, and I, I mean, like I going back way to the beginning is is that most of these guys like you said wrote these as a demo and they were hanging around just playing local and then then they say they have to tour for a year and then the label tells them hey you got to go record so maybe there's something to that i don't know i mean listen like you mentioned the bleeding right i mean that's one of the best cannibal and that's what third or fourth album right right Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, some bands get better. I mean, listen, you listen to the new obituary and Cannibal Records, they still sound great. I mean, the Deicide still sounds, the new records still sound good. But I just, maybe it's the freshness thing, I don't know it is, but... Right. I mean, I'll, I'll say this is, in general, a lot of times, the first record, everybody's rehearsed everything much more than they have when they've been on the road, obviously, because they have other commitments. You know what I mean? It's just the evolution of a band and being popular, I think. Yeah. I think it's just one of those things amongst a lot of people that, you know, they, they, it's a, it's a popular opinion that just seeks to seek into you and, and, 
it's just it's just always something that I I, I find it interesting to ask more and more people because it's there really is no right or wrong answer and like you said it isn't always like oh it's just the, the first album the first record only but it is just something that's very grounded in a lot of like more of elitist metal attitude that's like you know, first records demos and stuff so it was just interesting to you know be able to get your take on what you may have may have thought that could have been the component of what drives such so yeah no it's yeah. interesting to hear. So uh, this is kind of an interesting question, and uh, I might know the answer just based on kind of what you told us already. But uh, someone had asked this, and I thought it was really great. The the guy asking was wondering if you had been approached by anyone or if you would be down um, if someone was to ask you um, about making uh, kind of Scott Burns suite of mixing and mastering, kind of like a VST plug-in thing based on your iconic sound. You know, that's happening a lot with producers and producer packs these days or everywhere. But uh, I'd be surprised if no one approached you at all. And uh, if someone did, you know, how would you feel about that? Uh, well, I don't, I guess I don't quite understand what they would be asking for me. I didn't quite, I mean, cause there's, Right, I mean, sorry, Thomas. I don't get what. Well, yeah, I guess the technology is kind of beyond. Uh, well, where, where you're at, that might have been what he said earlier. He doesn't yeah, know. Right. What, he doesn't know. Well, yeah. I guess what Thomas really is kind of describing is like, yeah. So in, you know, a lot of these programs and stuff like it's you, DAWs. Or, or, and and because it's actually even kind of further because like now you can even take your mix and just literally upload it to a website and it'll master it for you within the time that it spins in a circle. You know, it takes a moment to process, but it doesn't take weeks to months like normal mastering does uh so no, so it's needless to say to be able to do something like that from a computer standpoint requires some sort of programming and so to to kind of break down that what that would be the programmer would have to be like hey scott so like what kind of board would you want to mimic and you know right. you set up all these presets or whatever so would you even a i guess have the foggiest idea where to begin to like oh well i think this board would be good used to, to use this yeah, this yeah is so this. i i think that's more i'm just not interested we'll just end it. <laughs> yeah i have yeah. no interest whatsoever i mean listen i i just like extreme music or i like all kinds of music but I know I don't want to jar a special sauce. <laughs> there right. is no spe the band is the special sauce. So. Well, I think that's important. And, and when you look at a lot of um, uh, kind of more popular producers of the day, or at least the last 10, 20 years, you do start to see that um, that same thing that, um, you know, you, you maybe got pigeonholed for everything sounding the same, but I, I really don't think that's true. I, no. I think that happened because you did so many friggin' records that, you know, people just kind of lumped it up. But, you know, you look at the bleeding, and you look at Butcher to Birth. Those are two very, very different records, and it's it's capturing a band at two very different times. And I think you expertly captured that band sounding the way they did at in that year at that moment in time. Whereas I think when you talk about these producer packs and these templates, let's say, and when you got like a great engineer like Andy Sneap, he's fantastic. He knows his stuff, but at the same time, um, people would start to argue. You know, I I could put on a record now, and I could tell you if it's a sneep, if it's if it was sneep that mixed and mastered it or whatever, just because it gets in such a kind of formula, and and granted, that's why a lot of the bands go there is they want that particular sound, but at the same time, once it becomes kind of this staple thing, it it does get old and it does become. Like you mentioned earlier, this they sound great, but it can become as lifeless because when they import those drums, he just throws this kind of preset on it, 
and then you get that sound. You get that Andy Sneap sound or whatever it is. So, um, so I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about the band and capturing the band in the moment and what they sound like. And I think there are some engineers that are able to do that these days. But, uh, you know, we've kind of come in this uh, – I don't know if, if technology – you know, obviously can become a handicap at some at some point, too, because you get into the rigmarole of, you know, uh, the ease of it. Well, the, the, so it's interesting. I, I Actually, it's not. I, I just think it's commendable because not that it sounds like anybody's knocking down your door to do these things. But if they it's like it, we're definitely in an age where if you're on like social media or something, you'll see this thing. Masterclass, you know, learn how to make fil- films from Martin Scorsese and all this stuff where it's like, you know, back to the old. Oh, they, they all sound the same and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you know, you're going to be an engineer. You're, you're using your tools. So a lot of the same is, in my opinion, comes from the tools, the rooms, the, the this and that. Where then when you're using the compressor, OK, Scott might use it different than Jim. And that's where the Scott's going to maybe come into it. And then, yeah, it's going to be larger about the band and that's why it's commendable because rather than being the the martin scorsese is going to teach you how to do film scott's going to teach you how to record it is very important to highlight the fact that look man like it is about the band you're going to have to do things from like you know it's often said with mastering too that like a good master you're not going to notice the difference of what i did or not and i think that's a lot of maybe even what you've described with working with the bands like you know you're kind of there to be the guy that knows like hey you know, Scott, maybe you got a better take in you. Try those drums again. Or, you know, Scott's worn out. He, If we keep giving takes out of him, this ain't going to work. It's just going to waste time, so we might as well implement that you know, that triggering and stuff like that. And I think that's more probably what you're describing of, like, what how you feel of what you've done. That it's like, how are you going to explain that to somebody? You either recognize that, you know, this is going to waste time, this is going to be this or that, or you don't. And to say there's a secret sauce is just going to kind of be flat out giving promise to something you're not going to be able to deliver on almost. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, everybody's different, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. So <laughs> because I have to, I have a meeting at two 30. I'm sorry. To, but so just, if you want to wind up, but I'm sorry at two 30. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. No problem. We appreciate you taking the time. I, I'm pretty much all wrapped up anyway. Uh, it's great talking to you, Scott. This was, a. Uh, Really enlightening. There's a lot of people that are really interested in listening, and I'll I'll be sure to um, notify you once it hits Spotify. So if you want to kind of check it out, you yeah, can check I'll it out. I'll listen. But always, like I said, if I could just make one thing, it's just remember, it's the bands, right? Those yeah. guys worked hard. Those guys wrote the song. I, I'm just privileged that I got to work with them. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, went into my... Little rant yeah. there. So well, I want to say we thank you for your service uh, because these are all the records I grew up on, and, and they, they've obviously uh, have a lasting effect on, on my life. And you know, I, I was a touring musician because of it, and uh, wanted to get into music because of it. And you know, I, I would say that you were a part of that. So thank you for everything that you've done and, and being genuine and, and trying to bring out the best in all of it. So yeah, absolutely. Because because if, if you know if you're that nerd that sits there like me, I've done it. You know, you sit there and you look at these things and you can pick them apart. At the end of the day, you were essentially kind of a pioneer that you're left with nothing. you got to make this music. It's brand new. It's this or that or this. And people are looking at you to do something. So to be 30 years later and criticize it or whatever and say it sounds the same, it's like that's kind of easier said than done than, you know, basically innovating the thing as it's going. So really, you know, yeah, I, it's definitely uh, just, I don't know, it's awesome to have had this opportunity. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Scott. 
Well, thanks for having me. And if you ever get down Tampa Way, call me and we'll have a beer or burger or whatever. Will do. We appreciate it. If you end up in Columbus again, let me know and we'll meet you I down. Will. I, I will. I will. I always wanted to go to the Jake when I was in Columbus because I'm a big baseball fan, but or go see the Browns, but I never could make it work. So, oh, yeah, up in Cleveland. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still a good two-hour drive between it. But, uh, yeah. We, I'd, I'd be happy to meet you down there. So yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in the car too. If they only, they <laughs> yeah. just hope they just gotta stop this Corona shit, and we can all get on that. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> we'll have a vodka and a beer. So. There you go. Works Sounds for good. me. I mean, what more do you have to say, Scott Burns? And this is the Into the Darkness podcast, and we got totally down and nerdy, right, Tommy? I mean, I'm a. Yeah, it's funny because I. When we went into this, there's so many questions I had, and I have this whole book filled up, and I'm, I'm looking at comments people left, you know, when I had posted on social media. We got through, I would say, 99% of them where I was – it's kind of perfect timing we wrapped up. Um, I'm sure we could have gotten into more nerdery or more funny stories. I guess that was yeah. the one thing I was going to start asking him was about particular bands and, you know, can you recite a story? But he kind of did that already yeah. uh, within the podcast, so um, – yeah, great, great guy, well, nice guy, and uh, cool to uh, get his perspective well, on everything. Right. And to and you know, I think it came up there where it was blatantly obvious sometimes for some of these questions, and and it's I'm kind of surprised more people don't just stop and say this and stuff. It's like, look, dude, you're asking me to remember something from 30 fucking years <laughs> right. ago. Like, I don't know. And yeah. So, so for anybody that might be like, why, why didn't you ask him about this? Like. You could kind of tell that you know there there are certain things that it's like, dude, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so you know you go with the flow of that, but yeah, wow. So to ever had that opportunity though, that that's really fucking cool. So into the darkness podcast interview series. That's what we do. We get down and nerdy. So if you like this, definitely check out everything else that's here on the Reaper Metal Productions channel. But more into the darkness if that's only your flavor. And hey, if you're just like, holy shit, that was a long video. There was a lot to watch. But man, if you could do this audio form next time, we got you covered because this is a podcast. And sure, there's an audio version. ReaperMetalProductions.com. And don't forget about Redefining Darkness Records and all that is in the description of this video, so we have no excuses to check it out and subscribe, like, all that bullshit that you love to hear about. You shouldn't have to hear about it, a reminder, but you got one. So do it. And when you do, that means we can talk to you next time.